to Esther, the book of Esther. Chapter 1, Esther chapter 1, and uh, we shall begin in verse 9 and read to the end, verse 22. We want to consider tonight a royal rebellion, a royal rebellion. Not sure if we'll get through everything, but a royal rebellion. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Caucus, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were, well, or who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Koshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only as the king, against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. There's so many things to consider, aren't there, in that passage before us. And so tonight I want to talk a little bit about a royal rebellion. In one sense, this book of Esther is a book of refusal or a book of refusals. Uh, refusals, of course, have consequences when you're talking about a Persian king. 
And certainly you can see the consequences of Vashti's decision, her refusal to come into the presence of Xerxes or Ahasuerus. In more modern times or more recent times, Prince Harry has challenged uh, the Queen of England and all that that stands for, and uh, he has been on the receiving end of a royal consequence. Outcast, if you like. No longer holding to royal position and so on. And in these verses, of course, Queen Vashti refuses to make, uh, make an entrance, and as a result, there's no question she pays a price. She refused to come, and Ahasuerus was enraged. He sought advice. The advice was to uh, have her removed from her royal position and to ensure that all the women in the kingdom give honor to their husbands, unlike Queen Vashti. So Vashti makes this refusal. It is interesting in the book of Esther, and if you're not sure of what I said about the introduction to the book of Esther, you should go back and listen to that, because it's very important to understand Esther. Esther, on the other hand, is not going to refuse the king's whim or the king's fancy. In fact, when Vashti refuses, Esther is quite willing to seek and to obtain a position of favor. In fact, her motives, Esther's motives, are never discussed in the book. We're never told why she did what she did. And there are many commentators and interpreters of the book of Esther who read much into the text. Uh, and I'm not convinced of all of those uh, interpretations that come out of the book in modern times regarding Esther and how she was a heroine and so on. I'm not convinced of that at all. Uh, here is a, a Jewess who uh, gives, it would appear, no concern to the law of God, no concern to, to restrictions that are placed upon her people by God himself. There's no mention of her praying. There's no mention of the temple. There's no mention of sacrifices. There's no mention of Jerusalem. There's nothing in this book of Esther that uh, impresses itself upon us from the point of view that if you read Ezra or if you read Nehemiah, you would be well aware of uh, the obligations that they felt towards Jerusalem or felt towards the law of God. But there's nothing like that in Esther. So given the fact that none of that is stated and none of that is said, it's very difficult to read and gauge the motives that drove Esther or perhaps even drove Mordecai to seek her uh, exaltation. So her motives are never known. We never know what went on in Esther's mind to submit herself to this Persian uncircumcised Gentile, this Persian king. That he had absolute authority over Esther, just as he has absolute authority over Vashti, and has absolute authority over every single citizen of the kingdom, is not disputed. Ahasuerus is a tyrant in many respects. He commands absolute obeisance, absolute loyalty. You must submit to Ahasuerus. Vashti must have known that by her refusal, she would pay a surprise for refusing the command of King Ahasuerus. Yet she pursues her course. It would appear that she said no, and she refuses the king's command. And again, what motives Vashti had to make such a refusal, we are never told. 
She simply refused the request of the seven eunuchs who came to bring her before the king. So the motives of Esther and the motives of Vashti are hidden from us. And I think there is a reason why we find these motives not revealed for us. Because what we are de uh, desire to understand is why is this book in the Bible when there is no mention of God whatsoever in the book? I think that's precisely the hidden, the hidden motives, the things that are not revealed versus the things that are revealed are to point us to God and to show us that in the midst of this world that is full of common flaw and common sin abounding everywhere, that God is able to do certain things and does certain things. Perhaps Vashti was just simply too busy to come because she, we are told in verse 9, has organized a feast for the women that live in the palace of King Ahasuerus. So she is overseeing her own party, her own feast, because you remember King Ahasuerus has held a party for 180 days for all of the important officials of the kingdom, generals, governors, all the officials of the Persians and the Medes. And then he held another feast, a much lesser feast, for seven days for all the citizens in Susa, in the capital in Persia. And so at the same time we discover that Vashti holds a feast for the women. And so perhaps she was occupied with that. And you'll notice in verse 12, which verse 12 puts quite bluntly, Queen Vashti refused to come. She refused to obey Xerxes. And notice that the reason given was something that might appeal to women of power or to women in politics. Verse 11, it was a display of her beauty that was required to be seen. That's what Ahasuerus wanted to put on display, the beauty of uh, Vashti. And the text tells us in verse 11, she was lovely to look at. And what woman of power would not desire to be upheld in such a way? And yet Vashti is unmoved. Vashti refuses the king's command. Esther, of course, this book of Esther, is full of plots and subplots. It's full of subterfuge. It's full of refusal. It's full of rebellion. This is everywhere in the book of Esther. Not only Vashti's rebellion in this very first chapter. But think about in chapter 2, the two eunuchs who committed treason. And Mordecai discovered the plot. Those two eunuchs sought to lay hands, the Bible says, upon King Ahasuerus. And think about Haman's plot to destroy all the Jews in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And the reason for that desire by Haman was because of Mordecai's refusal to bow to Haman. And Mordecai's own refusal to bow to Haman set in motion a a directive by Haman that he was not prepared just to take out Mordecai, but every single Jew in the kingdom was going to be killed because of Mordecai's refusal to bow to Haman. So how do we hold Mordecai's refusal to bow to Haman, and with what regard do we look at it? Even Esther's plan to reveal Haman's plot in chapter 5 and chapter 7 is filled with subterfuge and undercurrents as we look at the passage. <coughs> Haman had plans, as we know, for Mordecai. 
Everything in Esther, this, this whole book, is filled with politics. <coughs> it's filled with scheming. It's filled with subterfuge. So I want to look at this passage with you, first of all, in three ways. I don't think we'll, we'll get through all three of them. The first is Xerxes' request, verses 9, 10, and 11. Secondly is Vashti's refusal, verse 12. And thirdly, Xerxes' response, verse 13 through verse 22. So Xerxes' request, Vashti's refusal, and Xerxes' response to that. So let's begin verse 10, or verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, with Xerxes' request. I begin with the occasion. <coughs> the occasion is verse 9. Vashti has organized her own feast. Vashti has given her own feast for the women in the palace. It's probable, as I said before, that these women are the harem of King Ahasuerus. They belong to the palace. They live in the palace. You'll notice that the women of verse 9 are set or staged in contrast to verse 8, the end of verse 8, each man to do or as he desired. So the women are contrasted with each man in verse 8. And perhaps Vashti was upset that the women would miss out and not have a feast of their own. I mean, every citizen was invited to the feast, the seven-day feast in the city of Susa, but not the women, it would appear. And so, because they are hidden away, kept out of sight, reserved in the harem, perhaps Vashti felt some obligation to those women. They would miss out. So she gave a feast for them. And I'm inclined to think that that's exactly what did happen, that Vashti is giving a feast for these women. So this really is the occasion for launching us into this consideration that we have of this first chapter. But that brings us to this Queen Vashti in verse 9. What's interesting about Queen Vashti is that she is called throughout this chapter Queen Vashti. So, for instance, you look at verse 9, it says, Queen Vashti gave a feast. In verse 11, the command is to bring Queen Vashti. In verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come. In verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Verse 16, Memucan says, not only has the, against the king has Queen Vashti done this, and in verse 17, the queen's behavior translates, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. So she is referred to as Queen Vashti. But it is very interesting in the passage and in the text that she becomes simply Vashti. So if you look at verse 19, in verse 19, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. So perhaps Memucan feels quite confident in uh, already seeing a demotion of Queen Vashti from Queen Vashti to just simply Vashti. And if you go over to chapter 2, and you look at verse 1, it says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti. You go down to verse 4. Uh, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. 
And finally, verse 17 of chapter 2, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So there's no question that suddenly she has moved from Queen Vashti to, in the text, by the author, as he records these events, to simply being Vashti, which might be, of course, a reference to her common position. Because remember, the author, or whoever is authoring Esther, is authoring, writing after these events. And so he's looking back, or she's looking back, on the record uh, of these events and what took place. And so there's this introduction of change from Queen Vashti to Vashti, which may suggest that she was reduced to a common standard. Now Vashti, the name, Vashti raises for us some very serious problems in history, because history does not mention her at all as one of the wives of Xerxes. In fact, Herodotus, the great geographer and the great philosopher and the great historian, the Greek historian, he names Xerxes' wife as Amestris, A-M-E-S-T-R-I-S, Amestris. So how do we reconcile this statement in Esther that the queen of Xerxes or the queen of Ahasuerus is Vashti with what history tells us that the queen's name was actually Amestris? Well, one way of reconciling the difference or reconciling the dilemma is to say that Vashti is a Hebrew transliteration of the Persian name and that Amestris is the Greek name that we have recorded by Herodotus, the Greek historian. Another attempt, of course, is perhaps Amestris and Vashti along similar lines are exactly the same woman and that Herodotus, which is his standard practice, only mentions royal wives who bear sons to succeed the king. In fact, Amestris, from history, is the mother of Artaxerxes I, who is the king in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah, who is the son of this Xerxes of King Ahasuerus. So, perhaps Herodotus, because he records only the royal wife who bears a royal son to inherit the throne, makes that record and names uh, that person. But in the Bible account, that is not made. Now, if Amestris and Vashti are not the same person, if they're not the same person, and Herodotus only mentions mothers who, uh, and their sons, then again, there is no problem. Amestris had Artaxerxes as the queen of uh, Xerxes, and Vashti had no child. And so we now have no record of Herodotus recording Vashti. Perhaps that's the case. There certainly is not uh, the case of Esther being Amestris, because Amestris, it would appear, is Greek or Persian, and Esther, as we know, is Jewish. So we reject that. Queen Vashti has been said to be the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, and the daughter of Belshazzar. You remember Belshazzar, the kingdom fell in Daniel chapter 5 to the Medes and the Persians, to Cyrus the Great. And that may be, that may not be. We don't know anything more about that, that kind of statement. So we have, to, we have to look at Queen Vashti and say there she is in her royal position and there are things that we cannot uh, reconcile totally about her from the point of view of history that we know that Herodotus gives us. 
But I'm not too troubled by that. There is no mention in history of Esther either outside of the Bible. And of course, I'll always believe the Bible first, right? Uh, because it is the inspired Word of God. And so I take that to be true. Sometimes we, re we are able to reconcile biblical accounts and biblical things from archaeology uh, with what we discover in the world today. And archaeological discoveries are going on all the time. And uh, they prove the scriptures. But there are many, many things, of course, that remain unknown to us. And that should not be of no consequence or trouble to us as believers. So, the th next thing to consider is, you notice the request in verse 10 and 11. It says in verse 10 that on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded these seven eunuchs, and he names them, and the, the, the text names them, who served in the presence of Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, because she was lovely to look at. So the request comes on the seventh day. The seventh day goes back to uh, verse 5, the seven-day feast that Ahasuerus gave. So on the last day of the feast, the seven-day feast in verse 5, the Bible tells us that Xerxes was drunk with wine. Uh, the, the ESV, the New American Standard, the King James, New King James all make that statement. The NIV uh, puts a little pun on it and says that he was in high spirits. In high spirits. I don't know if they intended that pun or not. Drinking is a cultural norm, isn't it? Even today, in our society. The imbibing of alcohol across the world in secular situations exists everywhere. Uh, the Muslims, of course, don't drink wine because they restrain themselves or refrain for religious reasons. And there are many Christians who likewise have the same perspective on the drinking of alcohol. Certainly we have uh, the, the position of not being drunk because that would be excess because the Bible forbids us to be drunk. But drinking and making merry has long been a cultural norm across the centuries and across the countries of the world, often with negative connotations and often with many negative consequences. For instance, we have laws that say something like, don't drink and drive. Well, why wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you want to be happy driving? No, because we know that if you drink and drive, there is the danger you might kill someone, so we make a law, don't drink and drive. Herodotus, the historian, tells us significantly again that when the Persians drank, that during the time of their drinking, they deliberated and they discussed matters of state. So this was common for them in their governing, in their talking among themselves about what they would do, their plans to rule their kingdom. They're drinking, 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 and making these things. And if you look at chapter 3 of Esther, and I think verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. This is the destruction of the Jews. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And so Herodotus reminds us that it was Persian practice that when they discussed matters of state, when they talked about these important things, that they actually drank amongst themselves. Now there was a reason for this, because there are many cultures even today that believe that intoxication, 
brings you closer to the spiritual realm or the spiritual world. Uh, in fact, if you smoke weed, uh, you might experience such intoxication. If you take drugs, you might experience that. If you drink too much alcohol, you might experience such thing. And these, these things are all used in exercises to bring on an altered state of consciousness. And that has been going on for years and for years. Inhalation and intoxication, which was common practice, it would appear, even among the Persians. So all this drinking, if you look at verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And verse 8, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. There is no restraint. Just drink as you like. And verse 10, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. So it would appear that for the Persians, all this drinking was normal and was natural to them. And Xerxes' display of royal power, you look at verse 4, verse 4 says, While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. You remember how we said that those 180 days are taken up with, with calling all these governors and officials from the 127 provinces at different times to discuss matters of state. And Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, he shows them his royal power. He shows them the vastness of his reign and his rule and his strength. So he displays his royal power. It is always set, it would appear, within this context of too much drinking, this Persian practice. Now, if this display of royal power and of royal bounty is to gain loyalty and to gain service from his governors and from his generals, which it is in the 180 days, it would appear, then to refuse such Persian hospitality or Persian generosity would be tantamount to treason and tantamount to rebellion. So, for Vashti to refuse the king's command has far greater consequences than perhaps we might realize when we just read the text on the surface. It's not just simply no, and I'll see you later, and we'll talk about it. It's not like that. In fact, what is the result of Ahasuerus when he receives the, the response from the seven eunuchs? He is enraged and he is very, very angry. So he is that because embarrassment has been caused to him by Vashti in refusing to come. So on the seventh day, when wine dominates the reason and dulls the senses of Xerxes, he gives this command to these seven eunuchs that the Bible names for us. These men that stand there in the presence of Ahasuerus and serve him, and he commands them to go and fetch Queen Vashti. This is not a gentle request. This is a man whose senses are dulled with alcohol. It's not a polite request. In fact, it's put forward in the form of a command. Get Vashti. Bring her here. You notice in verse 10, he commanded Verse 10, he commanded, and then the names the eunuchs, to bring Queen Vashti before him. Now, you know, you could make a very interesting study in eunuchs in the Old Testament. The Old Testament mentions eunuchs 45 times. Twelve of those times are right here in the book of Esther. So eunuchs are important in the book of Esther. These are men, by the way, 
who are supposed to be no threat to the king, no threat to Ahasuerus, no threat to the throne. They are slaves. And we read, for instance, in our Bibles of the Ethiopian eunuch, don't we? In Acts chapter 8, who believed the gospel and who responded to Philip the evangelist explaining Isaiah to him and who was baptized. The Bible tells us he was a court official in the, in the reign of Queen Candace, Candace, Queen of Ethiopia. We read also about another Ethiopian eunuch, Ebed-Melech. He's the man who saved the life of Jeremiah, who was in the pit in Jeremiah chapter 38. Isn't it interesting? Two Ethiopian eunuchs are mentioned with favor in the Bible. We read of Ashpenaz, who is the chief eunuch to King Nebuchadnezzar in the time of Daniel, and Daniel certainly knew Ashpenaz. And if you take a look here, chapter 2 of Esther, and look at verse, I think verse 3, it says that, the request is said that let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And if you go down to verse 14 of chapter 2, in the evening she would go, this is the, the, the girl, she go in, and in the morning she comes out to the second harem in the custody of Shaashgaz the king's eunuch who's in charge of the concubines. So before they go to Xerxes, they're under Haggai the eunuch's care. When they come out from being with King Xerxes, they go into Shaashgaz's care. And they're both of them, Haggai and Shaashgaz, are called the king's eunuch, in charge of the women, in charge of the concubines. You notice that once they have been to the king and spent the night with the king, they become a concubine. And there they remain in the harem in the palace. Eunuchs, of course, are entrusted with, with significant work, important work. The Ethiopian eunuch is a court official. And so they have this responsibility that is entrusted to them to do what the king says because they pose no threat to the king, to Xerxes himself. But you will notice if you look at chapter 2 and verse 21, chapter 2 verse 21, it says, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry, sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Treasonous eunuchs. Men who thought they could lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Mordecai discovered the plot and, of course, made a report of it and they were arrested and dealt with and a record was made in the chronicles of the king. Well, these seven eunuchs in verse 10, chapter 1, are sent to fetch Vashti in verse 11. So let us talk a little bit about Vashti's refusal in verse 12. Look at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And this, at this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now what is Xerxes trying to do? Well, Xerxes wants to show off Vashti. She's a trophy to him, it would appear. It is interesting that Jewish rabbis believe that Xerxes commanded Vashti to appear naked with just the crown on her head. There's nothing in the text to suggest that, by the way. You would be reading into the text. In fact, the rabbis are reading into the text because there's nothing in the text to suggest that that was actually the command 
uh, of Ahasuerus. Certainly, Vashti is well known for her beauty, isn't she? She's lovely to look at. She's beautiful is the word. There's a beauty about Vashti, which, of course, Esther herself will have as well. She was lovely to look at. Every time you looked at Vashti, she was beautiful in the sight of the beholder. And right here, in verse 12, the mighty power of this man who rules 127 provinces with absolute authority hits a brick wall. She says, no. Sorry, I'm not coming. She refused to come, verse 12 says. There's no confusion, by the way, as to the Hebrew word refused. It means exactly that. She just refused to come. Now, you know, I try to put myself into the position of the eunuchs who deliver the message. Hey, Vashti, or Queen Vashti, your royal highness, the king desires your presence in throne room or wherever it is. They probably couldn't believe their ears when she said, no, I'm not coming. In fact, she might have said, not today and not in this way. I'm not coming. I refuse. You know, Xerxes may be able to persuade his military generals and his governors, which he's been trying to do for 180 days, because he wants to launch an invasion of Greece. He needs their support. So he shows them his royal bounty. He shows them his might and his power because he's trying to entice them to support him to make this invasion of Greece. For 180 days, brings them all in, shows them all of this, drinks with them, and tells them of his plans because he wants to avenge the loss of his father when his father made an attack upon Greece and was defeated. But he cannot command Queen Vashti. All this power, all this might, and he's unable to get his wife to come. She refused, and it would appear she seems to have no regard for the consequences. None. And there surely would be consequences, right? I mean, I can see the seven eunuchs in utter shock, scurrying back down the hallways, back to where Xerxes is, trying to think of how can we tell him she said no, she's not coming. I mean, can you imagine? You'd fear for your life if you were a eunuch because you failed the king. And they would have had all the reason in the world to fear for their own lives at delivering such a message. So right here when we come to this, this is pretty standard. You read this in the text. But let's pause for a moment and just think, can I learn anything from what I have considered or we have considered here in just these opening verses. First of all, the world, and always the world, is driven by three things. The first thing is that it is driven by the pursuit of power. The pursuit of power. Secondly, the world is driven by the practice of pleasure. And thirdly, the world is driven by the parade of pride. Always. Okay, so the world is only interested in power, in pleasure, and in pride. That's the world. In fact, we attribute now to homosexual issues the whole idea of pride. Pride is common. Pride existed in the garden. Pride exists at the root of our unbelief and our sinfulness. 
So the pursuit of power and the practice of pleasure and the parade of power. And in those three things, you find everything you will ever need to know to understand the depravity of man. Because that's what the, the depravity of man is all concerned with. Power, pleasure, and pride. And when you go out into the world, that is exactly what you discover. And by the way, it doesn't matter what city you go to, and it doesn't matter what people you encounter, and it doesn't matter what century you look at. You will discover the depravity of man manifests itself always in power, in pleasure, and in human pride. Think of any politician today let alone all the politicians from the past, they have one thing in mind, and that is power. Even when there is a division amongst political parties, what do you discover? That that side desires power, and that side desires power. They're always about power. Think of our entertainment industry. Think of our sports world. Think of our movies. And the movies, of course, are prolific, right? What is all that about? It's about pleasure. That's what it's about pleasure. And do you know what's at the heart of the power and at the heart of the pleasure is the pride of man. So whenever you encounter the world and you see what the world's like, that's what you're going to see. That's what you're going to feel. That's what you're going to be exposed to. You're going to be exposed to the pursuit of power and of course the display or the, 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 the desire to be pleasured and how foolish the world is when you look at what pleases them, when you look at what pleasures them, because that's the depravity of the human heart. Any Christian that comes into contact with the world like that feels the shock of it, right? It's like, a, it's like being doused with cold water. It just puts a dampener on everything. It just makes you shiver in one sense. You feel the shock of it, because a raw demonstration of depravity is in simple things. Like, I want to be powerful. I want to be rich. I want to enjoy myself. From seemingly innocent desires to enjoy whatever it is, and God has, by the way, given us richly all things to enjoy, but man in his depravity will always abuse what God has so graciously given him. And so for us as believers, if you want to see a raw demonstration of depravity, then just look at those things. Look at the heart of man. In fact, any Christian in the world should be like a fish out of water, right? Unable to breathe properly. Just gasping for, for air, for some place to find stability. But the world doesn't offer us any of that. Doesn't matter where you go, anywhere in the world. In fact, Esther, this book of Esther teaches us about what is common to man. That at the very heart of Ahasuerus is depravity, is sin is rebellion against God. At the heart of Vashti is sin. At the heart of Esther is sin. There's no perfection here. There's just depravity. There's just sinfulness. And if men and women do not have God, then what do they have? They have only themselves. And how do they, how do they satisfy themselves? They satisfy it by power and by pleasure and by pride. Look at me, how good I am. And so on and so forth. They seek satisfaction only and always in themselves because they don't have God. That's all they have. It's like an engine, by the way, that must keep running. Or like a pig that, 
that has wallowed in the mud and has to keep returning to the mud to satisfy themselves. That's the world. It just keeps turning over in the same direction, in the same way. That's the world of Persia. That's the world of America. That's the world of Sarasota. That's the world of the people just right there. This is our world. It's filled with these things. Even those who will never achieve political power, they will seek pleasure. They will seek pleasure. Man will seek one of those three things always, or all three. Unholy ambitions, right? Unclean actions everywhere in the world. Always. Through all time. From the moment Adam sinned in the garden. Our society, by the way, is held together by pleasure. Do you know that? I think perhaps more so than any other nation in the world. This country, our country, is held together. The fabric of it is held together, not by power. Though that's there in abundance, but by pleasure. Because you can do as you please. You can do, as the book of Judges says, everything which is right in your own eyes, if you want. Here. Today, tonight, anywhere in this country, freely, doing what you please, when you please. That's the world. That's the world we live in. And as Christians, we feel, we feel that we don't, we don't want that. We don't belong to that. And so we're, we're caught, as it were, in a net. And we find it very difficult to face the world like that. To live as salt and light. Because when you live as salt and light, you're, you're outcast. You're separated from the world. They do not understand, as Simon Peter says, how you cannot engage with them in the same things they do. Because what they do, they do for pleasure. Why wouldn't you do it? Because we have a higher pleasure. We have a holy pleasure. The pleasure of God. That's what grips us. No longer the pleasures of the world and the pride of man. But we have given up ourselves for Jesus' sake. And taken him. That's the first thing. This is the world we know. This is the world we see every day and we live in. This is the world you work in. And go to work every day. But the second thing we learn is that it is precisely in this playground that God controls the swings and the roundabouts. It's precisely in this playground that God is doing his thing. That God demonstrates His power. Because doesn't God take whom He wills and choose whom He wills to save by His grace, with His sovereign power, and you cannot resist Him because of His grace to you and His love for you and His mercy to you. It's not man that's in charge of the world. A man wants to be in charge. You go to war with other nations to rule like... like Ahasuerus, he's making plans to, to overthrow Greece and he's going to fail. But he's making plans to do that. But it's not man that controls things. No man is willful and rebellious and man is sinful, but God is sovereign and God is merciful and God is gracious and kind even in the midst of that rebellion. Think of Israel in the Old Testament. They tested God, God says, ten times. When I said something, you refused. You didn't believe. I said it again, you refused. I said this, I said that, you refused, you refused. They had an evil, unbelieving heart. 
They refused God, but God was gracious, kept coming back, kept being merciful to them. You see, God is the opposite of what man is by nature. He's the opposite of what we are. In fact, He works. God works. If I can say it, God works best, but God always works best. But God works best in human tragedies. God works best in, in human pride and sorrow and sinfulness. That's when you see the power of God against the power of the world. And what power in this world can stand against the power of God? None. None. Now, you know, when, when, when people come to the book of Esther, they have great difficulties with the book of Esther, or they may have an easy time with the book. So Jewish interpreters and Jewish rabbis, they misuse Esther chapter 1. Because they use Xerxes or Ahasuerus to preach against the evils of alcohol. Or they use Vashti to preach against the rebellion of wives. And surely that's not right. That's an imposition on the text. That's a moral evaluation that the author of this book doesn't make at all. He doesn't reproach Ahasuerus for his drinking. He doesn't reproach Vashti for her refusal. He doesn't say anything about it. Because you see, one of the things you have to learn with exegesis is that exegesis is never my opinion and never your opinion. The moment it becomes your opinion, you engage in eisegesis, which is reading into the text. And we must never read into any text in the Bible, but we must exegete, take out of the text what the text says. We must never make it say what it doesn't say. And where Scripture is silent, you be silent, and I be silent. And so, it's not about my opinion or your opinion. It's probably true that if Xerxes had not been drinking and his senses had not been dulled and he was not merry with wine, that he might never have made that request for Vashti or command for Vashti to come and appear before them all. But that's not the point either. No, the point is that this court, this palace of this Persian king so long ago, like every court and every palace of every king, of every queen or government, the courts of power, is not a safe place for anyone. Not a safe place, like the world, is not a safe place for any of us. Because power is always easily abused. Xerxes is unpredictable. Xerxes is merciless. And he wields absolute power. So, if you were to refuse... To obey Xerxes, well, that's the end of you. And probably Vashti, that was the end of Vashti. We don't know that for sure. Xerxes, by the way, is the man who beheaded the men who were building a bridge for him at the Hellespont to help the army cross the bridge into Greece simply because a storm had arisen and they were unable to complete their work, so chop their heads off. Because a storm came. That's how fickle this man is. That's how violent this man is. That's the absolute power of humanity against other people, men and women. Vashti is often vilified, I think, as being wicked and rebellious. And the text says nothing about her being wicked or even rebellious. 
Tradition has it that she was not just deposed from her position, demoted, but was later executed for her refusal. In fact, Jewish interpreters have said this, she got what was coming to her because she forced good Jewish girls, Esther, to work on the Sabbath. Jewish interpretation. Luther himself has harsh words, and you know Luther had many difficulties about the book of Esther. But Luther has harsh words against Vashti to illustrate divorce, or against Esther, I mean against Vashti. He says, if a wife refuses to submit, get rid of her, and take an Esther, take an Esther, and let Vashti go, like Xerxes did. That's Luther. Well, he's a man who said it like, it's, like he saw it, right? There are others who praise Vashti for refusing to be a sex object, which our world is full of, right? But then look at Esther. I mean, sexism is not the main theme either of Esther, though it can easily be seen, right, in the book. Here's a man who just says, come, be here, and that's it. I want people to see you. It could be just as easily argued that Esther's presence in the bedroom of a king for a night was even more subversive than Vashti. Here's a good Jewish girl just willingly going off with a pagan king for the night. Just one among many. And she just happened to win, did she not? The Persia's Got Talent contest. She just happened to win it. But here's the point, right? It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if it's Ahasuerus or Vashti. It doesn't matter if it's Esther or Mordecai. God works in spite of them all. And God works and they're flawed. Their characters are flawed. They're not perfect characters. I think sometimes as Christians, we expect from ourselves perfect characters. There is none. None of us are perfect. I don't know all there is to know about you. That might be a good thing. And you don't know all there is to know about me. And that's a very good thing. Right? Because we're flawed. We're deceptive. Our hearts are, are so prone to hiding things. Even Christian hearts. One thing I do know is that in spite of my heart, and in spite of your heart, God still works in it. God's merciful and He's gracious to us, isn't He? To flawed human beings who are guilty of such depravity, He came in love. Can you imagine God doing that? To you, to me. So to us He brings grace and salvation. We're like Esther, we're like Vashti. We're depraved by nature. We're dead in trespasses and sins. But he had mercy, because he's rich in mercy, right? And because of his great love with which he loved us. It's only because of that that we're saved. Not because I, I'm better than somebody else, or, or I'm, a, I'm a good moral person, or I've, I attend church regularly. No, none of those things count. Because God looks at my heart and he sees, he sees black sin in all of us. So God didn't save me because I'm better than, than the rebel out there, or the pagan out there. No, I was a pagan. Just like him. And so were you. And so were I. But you see, sometimes we develop this, this characterization among us as Christians that we are much better than the world. 
But we're not. We're only saved by grace. Now it is true that God is changing us. But that doesn't give me the right to say I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I mean, isn't that what the disciples thought in their minds when they came across Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman? This prostitute who's had five husbands. In fact, the one she now has, not your husband. I mean, can you imagine how we would feel if someone like that came in here and said that to us? I've had five husbands, but the man I now have is not my husband. What will we do? Oh, you can't come in here. This is a, this is a church. But isn't that precisely the place where she ought to come? Isn't that precisely the place where the Samaritan woman was in the best company, the company of Jesus, who just told her her heart and showed it to her, and she believed. See, that's what Jesus does. He shows you your heart, shows me my heart, and I believe, and we believe. So it's not because what we accomplish or what we purpose in life. It's not why we're saved. We're saved because God is God and God is loving and God is kind to us and has been merciful to us. That doesn't make me better than someone else. You see, this is where we find ourselves in the book of Esther. Confronted with these ideas, with these thoughts. God takes very flawed human beings and He works in them and He works through them. Sometimes He doesn't save them. But he still demonstrates his power. I have raised you, Pharaoh, up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and my glory. A pagan Egyptian king in the hands of God, whose people then discover that God rules Pharaoh and has been thinking about them for 400 years and never forgotten them and will deliver them or redeem them with a mighty hand. You see, God has lavished then, right, grace and love and mercy upon us. And this is what we must see under the currents that swell around in the book of Esther, where God is not spoken or mentioned, but He's there. He's there. Just like He's there for you and for me tonight and tomorrow and for all the time. That's how I look at Esther. A royal rebellion, and then we'll see some more next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that you've given to us. We've reminded ourselves that the world is a very dangerous place because it's filled with darkness and death and depravity and sin. And we once were in the world, but you plucked us like a brand burning out of the fire and you saved us by grace. And so we want to thank you tonight for our salvation, which is all of grace which does not make us better than anyone else, but you have done such a marvelous work sovereignly in us to change us, to make us your people, to be a holy people, a different people, a godly people. The world will never understand that. We cannot make them understand it. All we can do is live before them a different life, and that's when the power of Christ comes through. But if we try to be like the world, then there is no power, and there is no difference. So help us to be a holy people and a faithful people in this world in which we live. Help us, help us to be sympathetic and compassionate and kind and tender towards those who do not believe because once we were like them. 
So we praise you and thank you for these studies and ask for your help as we continue uh, to look into this book of Esther. Now, Father, thank you for this day, this Lord's Day. Sanctify it, the beauty of it, and the, the delight of it to our souls and refresh us so that we can go forward into the tomorrow and the rest of the week and accomplish what you intend for us. So we commit all things to you. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for each one and pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.